Well, hey, welcome here, and uh, good to say a hello to uh, all of our sites. It's, uh, we haven't been together for a few weeks, so Central Abbey, East Abbey, and Mission, it's great. After the last three, four weekends, baptisms, uh, Lazarus story in John 11, and then, of course, last weekend, Easter celebrations, Good Friday services, and then celebrating uh, last Sunday across all of our sites. What a, a great weekend it was, was it not? So good to be together. So uh, we are starting a new series, and you will want to have your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. If you brought them along, we're going to be reading a chunk there, uh, which will be familiar to many of you, but we're going to start a new series talking about uh, the nature and the mission of the church. So over the next five weeks, uh, a little bit of a mini-series focusing in on the church. And so I want to start the series by simply declaring to all of you that I love the church. I love the local church. I love big churches. I love little churches. I love city churches. I love country churches. I love church people. I love church meetings. I love church gatherings. I love church buildings, even. Now, having said all of that, need to be really clear about what the church is and isn't, and actually what that word means, because rightly understood, the church is not many of the things that we often think about. The church is not actually an organization. The church is not an institution, and the church is certainly not a building, although we use the word church for all of those meanings. Fundamentally and biblically, particularly, the word church simply means the people of God, the called out people of God. So you will see behind me a Greek word on the screen, ekklesia. Ekklesia is the word for the church in the New Testament. In fact, you might recognize the English word ecclesiology, the study of the church, the study of the ekklesia. Uh, the church simply means the ones who are called out, ek. Kaleo, called out. So the church is the people of God called out from among, among the world. And there are so many metaphors throughout the scriptures that God is building a living temple out of living stones and he pulls us together to form a temple for his glory, that we are called the body of Christ. We are called the family of God. We are referred to as a field, as a vineyard, and in one case, as a bride being prepared for her groom, and, and many other metaphors. But at the core of all of them, the church, the ecclesia, is people. So look around you. Look around you. The people you see who have been called by God into the family of God, these people are the church. And so when I say I love the church, what I really mean is I love the people of God. Now, I know in saying that and starting a statement like that, that there are some who might push back and even some in our services this weekend that might push back saying, you know what, I love Jesus and I love the Bible, but I'm not so sure that I love the church. And increasingly in our day and age, there's a lot of people pushing away from the church, even people who were raised in the church, spent many years in the church who have turned their back and walking away. And so to be very clear, if you ask me, are there things about the church that bother you? Uh, yes, there are, for sure. Every local church is a mixture, a mixture of good and bad, a mixture of joy and sorrow, a mixture of truth and error, because the church is a family that is made up of imperfect people. And therefore, every church has its strengths and its weaknesses. In fact, you have probably heard, if you're looking for the perfect church, if you ever find the perfect church, if you heard this, please do not join it. Because if you do, you will ruin it. <laughs> the church is made up of imperfect people. And so you will have heard someone say, for sure, I was hurt by the church. 
What they really mean, if you press under the layers of that, is an institution, an organization is an it. It's an entity. It cannot hurt you. What they really mean is someone in the church hurt me. Some person in the church. And and, and the truth is that people do and say stupid things, right? And even inside the church, Christian people do and say stupid things. They sometimes say hurtful things, sinful things, even evil things. And more than likely, 99.9% of us in this room, which is most of us, could probably say that at some point along your spiritual journey, some other brother or sister in Christ has hurt you, has wounded you. But the local church, when it is operating as it should, is one of the most beautiful things on the planet. And you've heard me say this before. I don't know of any other organization like the church, an organization that takes people from all different backgrounds, male and female, from every ethnic and racial and language group on the planet, rich people and poor people, educated people and college dropouts. People who vote conservative, people who vote liberal, NDP, or green, doesn't matter. People who live under democracies and people who live under dictatorships. Whether you're 8 years old or 28 years old or 48 years old or 98 years old. There's no other place that brings all of those people together under one roof and then says to them, now love one another, care for one another, serve one another, worship and fellowship and pray together, and then sends us out the doors saying, now go out as a unified force for good in the communities in which you live. I don't know of any other organization on the planet that does that. And it is either a recipe for disaster or it is the beautiful, most beautiful orchestra that you could ever dream about. So we're going to do five weeks to focus on the nature and the mission of the church. And in part, because if you haven't heard the news yet, on April 4th, a few days ago, we gathered in this room for a special general meeting, and we voted overwhelmingly to start construction of a new worship center on the back part of this parking lot here at Downs. And even if we were, yeah, that's a good thing to say yay for. Even if we were digging ground today, however, we know it's going to be two and a half or three years before we move into that new sanctuary, have this fully renovated. So it means 2025 or 2026. So we've got some time. And in that time, we need to think and pray and talk about what kind of a church is God building. And even the questions, is the church still relevant? Is the church meaningful? Is the church necessary? And one of the dangers that congregations face when they go into a massive building project is that the building project itself can become the preoccupation. We can get so distracted on the building that we lose the focus on what God is doing among us. And so you're going to hear me over the course of these next couple years, and you will hear others, I'm sure, reminding you that it is not ultimately about a building at all. It is about what God is building in and through us. So the next five weeks, we're going to talk about why the church exists. And we're going to look at five categories. That the church exists for his glory. The church exists for the good of the city. The church exists for the good of his people. The church exists for the good of the nations. And the church exists for the good of the family. Those five categories, the nature and mission of the church. So before we call you to pray and serve, and before we ask you to give towards a building project... I want to call you to the highest level vision of the church, and I want to start today with the very first reference to the church. The first time the word ecclesia appears in the New Testament was from Jesus' lips in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, I will build my church. That's the first time that word appears in the New Testament. And so no matter what you currently think about the church, 
As an institution or an organization or, or even the people of God, what I re- want to remind you of in this first week was that the church was Jesus' idea. So let's just start there. It was Jesus who said, I will build my church. So if you ever hear somebody say, I don't like the church, say, well, then you disagree with Jesus. Because Jesus was the one who said, I'm going to build it. The church didn't just emerge accidentally somehow out of the history books. The church was and is part of God's sovereign plan and intention for the nations. He establishes local fellowships of believers in local congregations that make an impact in their neighborhoods, their cities, and then ultimately into the world. And so we're going to read this text together, Matthew 16, uh, about seven or eight verses. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Interesting text. So it starts in a place called Caesarea Philippi. We just need to press pause there for a moment and talk about where this was. This is one of the furthest northern regions that Jesus ever ministered. It was 30 to 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So if you've got a map of Israel in your mind, you've got the Dead Sea in Jerusalem down to the south, Galilee about 100 miles north, and then another 30, 40 kilometers, you've got Caesarea Philippi up in the foothills, specifically the foothill of Mount Hermon. So the headwaters to the river of Jordan came from three streams, and one of them literally came out of a spring out of the mouth of a cave at the foot of Mount Hermon. That spring then fed into the Sea of Galilee and ultimately the, 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 the River Jordan, 1,700 feet above sea level where it's a bit cooler. But this spot had become a parade of temples over the centuries. So back in the Old Testament days, a temple to Baal, had been built on this site. Later, when the Greeks invaded, they built a temple to Zeus and then ultimately to Pan. And Pan was the god of fertility, half human, half goat. He was in charge of the harvest. He was in charge of sexuality. He was in charge of fertility. A lot of funky worship went on at the the temple to Pan. Herod the Great later built a temple here unto Caesar. And then at one point, we are told by archaeologists that there were literally five temples to various gods literally standing side by side by side on this location. So much so that Orthodox Jews were forbidden to go to this site for fear that they would be contaminated by these false gods, by these pagan gods. And it became known as sort of the door to the underworld or the door to Hades or the gate of hell. Five temples on this spot. So that's the backdrop. So Jesus standing there in Caesarea Philippi with these five temples lined up side by side asks a most important question, who do people say that I am? He's about midway through his ministry. He's becoming popular. People are talking about him. What are they saying? Who do they say the son of man is? And he grabs that title, the son of man, which is from Daniel chapter seven. 
that one like the Son of Man, he was standing before the Ancient of Days, God the Father, one like the Son of Man is going to establish an eternal kingdom. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist. That's like what Herod said. Some say Elijah, because Malachi predicted that an Elijah would come. Some say Jeremiah, a weeping prophet. Uh, But he goes on to say, but who do you, plural, who do all you all, the disciples, who do you say that I am? And so Peter, as a spokesman, jumps in. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one predicted to come. You are the son of the living God. Okay, now what's interesting with this text is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, the gospels that see things the same way, the three synoptic gospels all tell this story, but only Matthew gives us the middle chunk. Mark and Luke jump from verse 16 down to verse 20. You're the son of the living God, and then he charged them strictly, don't tell anyone about it right away. They skip this middle section. But in Matthew, he includes it. Uh, Who do you say I am? And then Peter makes this declaration, and then he goes, you know what, Peter, verse 17, you didn't come up with this on your own. The only way that you could have made that declaration is if my Father in heaven revealed it to you. Now, we have covered this theme over and over and over again in the Gospel of John over the last few months. And this is an echo of the thought given in John 6, where Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How do you open the eyes of a spiritually blind person to see and declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord? Only if the Spirit opens their eyes can they make a declaration. So Jesus is saying to Peter, you didn't know this on your own. This is not just human ingenuity. The Father has revealed it to you. The work of faith, the gift of faith, the opening of our eyes is entirely the work of God. Verse 18, then Jesus makes his most famous promise and he has a little fun with the words in the original language. So he says this, I tell you, Peter, and the Greek word there is Petros. Petros, I tell you this, Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, not just a good rock band, but a boulder. So the thought here is Petros is a little pebble, a piece of gravel, a a stone. That's your name, Peter, your little rock. But on this Petra, on this bedrock, on this foundation, on this boulder, on this rock-solid stone, I am going to build my kingdom. And that verse should blow wind into our spiritual sails. Because we hear Jesus' prophetic promise about an entity that didn't even yet exist. I will build, future tense, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to build something that are going to actually tear down the gates of death and hell and the grave. Okay, so that's it. The first time that the word is used in the New Testament. I will build my church, my ecclesia. A gathering of my people who are going to be called out from the world and then sent back into the world. And my calling is going to be effective and powerful, so much so that I can make you this promise, Peter, that even the gates of hell, even the gates of Hades, like what we're standing in front of, these five temples in a row, will not and cannot prevail against the advancing of my church and of my kingdom. And so for 2,000 years, Jesus has been making good on that promise. And if we linger just a little bit over this text, we will take note of three things. And the first, and I think is very important, is that Jesus is the builder, and that is significant. You will notice that he said, I will build my church. 
I, my. I will build it and it is mine. It is my church and I am going to build it. It is Jesus' church, no one else's. It is his project and it belongs to him. He is the builder and and that should give us courage because he's the one building. And it should also give us rest because it's up to him. It's not on our shoulders. It's not on our denomination, on our local church, on our elders, on our pastors. It's on Jesus to build his church. Amen? He says in 1 Corinthians 3, neither he or plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So in this text, he mixes two metaphors. He says in the context here that we're God's co-laborers, co-workers, that we work alongside of him. But he says, you know what? We're just co-laborers. Some plant, some water. And he mixes two metaphors. Uh, here the church is compared to a harvest field. And he's like, so some plant, some water, but it is God who gives the increase and ultimately a harvest comes in. And then he switches the metaphor when he goes on to say, we are God's fellow workers and you are God's building." So the metaphor switches from a harvest field into a spiritual building. And he goes, so be very careful how you build on this foundation stone, whether you build with wood, hay, or stubble, or whether you build with gold and silver, because ultimately your works are going to be tested. So Jesus is the builder. We are his fellow workers. Number two, Jesus says, I will build on this rock. Now, this is interesting. Upon what rock? Because some read this text and said the rock is Peter, obviously. Peter, your name is rock, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. But remember, it was two different Greek words. I'm going to build my church upon you. And so some will say that Peter was the first pope of the church, and that apostolic succession came from Peter, that it was passed on from one to the next to the next to the next, and Peter was the first of a whole long line of popes that Jesus said, I'm going to build it on you, Peter. But if you're reading other New Testament texts, it makes it really clear that that's not what Jesus was saying. Ephesians 3 tells us this, you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And then here it is, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It is Jesus who is the rock. Upon this rock, what rock? Not Peter, Petros, little rock, but on this rock, this sound rock of revelation, what what Peter has just iterated Upon the confession of your faith, Peter, what you just said is the rock of revelation. Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? You are the son of the living God. Got it, Peter, on that rock, on that revelation. Take that message to the world and I will build my church on that rock. So John Piper, if you don't believe me, you'll believe Piper. He says, representing the apostles... Peter had spoken the foundational truth of the church. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And thus he and all the apostles became, according to Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the house of God, the church. And on this foundation of apostolic truth, Jesus promises, I will build my church. It was the truth upon which Peter spoke that Jesus said, I will build my church. And it is why one of the distinctions of gospel-centered churches is we spend so much time focusing on the person and the work of Jesus and on the testimony of this book. Because he said, on that declaration and on myself, Jesus was and is the rock upon which we build our lives.
And finally, the third observation is this, that death cannot prevail. He gives us this guarantee. Now, the word hell, death, Hades, and grave are used interchangeably, and we need to just pause there for a moment. Because what he's referring to when the gates of hell, that word appears 10 times in the New Testament, and it's the Greek word Hades. And you will see the word Hades in many other New Testament texts. And, and when you say the word Hades, you're literally saying a Greek word. It was transliterated. It is the Greek word Hades. It's the English word Hades. Well, what does it mean? It refers to the realm of the dead. It's used to refer to the grave, being buried, the Old Testament reference to Sheol, the place of the dead, uh, the grave, death, sin, the power of death and sin. So in Peter's Pentecost sermon, he uses this phrase. Acts 2, he's quoting from David, the Old Testament king. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades. Jesus did not stay in the place of the grave, the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. It's exactly, precisely what we celebrated last weekend. That Jesus did indeed descend into the grave. He was dead. He did not just swoon, as some have said. He was very dead. They buried him. Remember, the guys took him to the grave, Joseph and Nicodemus. The women were watching, noticing that the guys didn't do the job right. They went back Sunday morning to do the job right. Remember the story? He was dead. But Hades, the grave, did not hold him. He broke free. And then you've got this promise from Jesus himself in Revelation 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I walked out of the tomb, and I have the keys to sin and death and the grave. Now, what's interesting, if you remember the context that we just read... Jesus says to Peter and to the disciples with him, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then, by the way, I'm giving you the keys. Is that not interesting? The, ver the next verse, verse 19. I'm giving you the keys. What you bind on earth will be bound on earth. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I'm giving you the keys to unlocking the gates by this declaration and this call. That Jesus' voice and Jesus' word have the power to call people from death to life. The power of sin and death in the grave cannot prevail over this declaration that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And you're like, well, how does that happen? Because Jesus rips down the gates in the human heart of hell-bent sin. How do we get saved? The Lord calls us from death into life. That's how. And the gates of hell itself, the gates of Hades, the gates of sin and death, spiritual death and blindness, cannot hold us. So Jesus promises to build his church, and the church was his idea. So now fast forward through history. The early centuries of the church, they began to codify the teaching and the understanding of the church, and a lot of ancient creeds were written. There's three major ones that we refer back to, and they, they boiled it down to four markers of what the true church was, and they said this, the early church was one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. Now, don't freak out. I'll put the words on the screen for you. One holy apostolic Catholic. Don't freak out. This is what the early church was. It was defined by the creeds in this way. So let's talk about it. First of all, there was one true church. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 says this, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. What does it mean? That there is only one visible church. 
There should be, and there are spiritually no divisions between us in the true church of God. So if you rightly answer the question, how many churches are there in Abbotsford or in Mission? How many churches are there in Canada? How many churches are there in the world? The answer is there's only one. One church, the true church of Jesus, that we are unified. In other words, no matter where you go on the planet, if you are in Christ, if you have been called and responded to the call in Christ, then we are brothers and sisters. And it doesn't matter your race or your language or your class or your socioeconomic position. The church of Jesus, there are no first and second class citizens. We are one in Christ, one church. No denomination has a corner on the market. No local church has a corner on the market. No individual leader has a corner on the market. We're one church. I remember well years ago when we moved to Kelowna. We were a lot younger back then. There was an older guy, one of the last holdouts in the United Church of Canada, a strong evangelical gospel preacher by the name of Albert Baldeo. He was from Trinidad, and he was a fiery preacher, and he was an, just an awesome leader. And he would come to the evangelical ministerial, the only guy from the United Church at the evangelical ministerial. And he was fond of saying, you know what, men and women, when we get to heaven, you know, down here, there might be Mennonites and Methodists and Uniteds and Presbyterians, and he would name the whole denominations. But when we cross over, we're all going to be united. And the truth is, the truth is we will, and we are. There is only one church. Secondly, the church of Jesus is called a holy church. That we are set apart from the world and we are set apart unto. That the church should be significantly different because of the work of the Spirit of God within us. That the Spirit of God changes us from the inside out. We cannot help but be different from the world because the Spirit has done an amazing work. Bitter people have become sweet. Unforgiving people have become forgiving. And ungracious people become gracious. And the fruit of the Spirit starts. There's a well of life springing up within you. You're different. Set apart. Holy. Thirdly, Jesus' church was an apostolic church. It was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We looked at that. Acts 2 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. That the apostles' teaching in those early days, before we had the New Testament, which the apostles wrote for us, before we had the New Testament written, they devoted themselves to the verbal teaching until it was written down, and we build our church on that foundation. And the word apostle also carries with the idea of being sent. Apostolos is the same word for an entrepreneurial, spiritual entrepreneur, a missionary, a church planter, the sent ones. We are an apostolic people in the sense that we are sent on mission. That Jesus not only calls us out of the world, calls us to himself, but he sends us on mission. And so the church, the true church, has always been an activist church. The true church has always been outward facing, looking at the world and going, how do we serve the world? How do we bring this message that we have received and now take it, not keep it to ourselves like a cul-de-sac, but let it flow through us out to the world, an apostolic church. And finally, the early creeds speak of a Catholic church. And it's because that Original word, katholikos, right there it is, in the Greek language, katholikos. And all that word means is a universal or a whole, a perfect 
church. And it refers to the church of all true believers, living and dead, those before us, those who will come behind us if if the Lord tarries, the living and the dead that point us forward to the day when we stand before the throne of God, Revelation 5, with thousands of generations singing out his praise. And it says we're going to sing a new song. And then it says this, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. One universal church. So some people call this uh, the invisible church, the universal church. Now the challenge, of course, is with that word Catholic. Because today, when most people, most Protestants hear the word Catholic, they think Roman Catholic. And they're like, we're not Roman Catholics. Well, that's not what the word means. It means one holy church. So most evangelicals have confined that creed down to just the phrase, one holy church. So there were three ancient creeds. The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles is the one that we know the most and the best. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Do we have, is the screen working? Okay, we're going to, I think they got it back up. Let's go to this. Okay, good and loud. So at all of our sites, good and loud with me in every service, speak it out, okay? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. One holy Catholic church. In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking in future tense. I will build my church. It was his idea. Now, somebody's saying, well, that's all well and good. Jesus said he would build his church, and he has done so. That the church exists, we just take it for granted. But unto what end? Unto what goal? Unto what purpose? And herein lies the critical factor as we talk about loving Jesus' church. As we ask ourselves this question, why does the church exist? And the Bible is explicit that God has always had and he will always have a people for himself. He is going to build his church. God is building a people for his glory. That is the purpose of the church. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are called the people of God, the nation of Israel, and now the church. Both are called the people of God. And ultimately, in the new kingdom, there will be one unified people of God. Now, 1 Peter 2 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I don't know if you noticed those uh, underlying sections, that you may proclaim his excellencies, uh, that you may glorify God. The purpose for God's people. The unifying theme of both the Old Testament and New Testament, God's calling a people to himself, was that God wants to put his glory on display for a watching world. And so he calls a people unto himself. So when God called Abraham, he made it very explicit with Abraham, the first covenant. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Why? So that you can be a blessing. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was not just blessed to be a blessing and to soak it all up unto himself, but that his nation would be a blessing to all nations. And so the entire reason God's calling the church could be summarized with this idea is that God wants to display his glory. And he does it in four primary ways. He displays his glory through creation. He displays his glory through Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says, in the past, he has spoken by the prophets, but today he speaks to us by his son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact radiance, the exact representation of God. He speaks to us through the book, through the word, and he speaks his glory through his people. Those four means. Now, this is interesting to think about because there are some amazing promises given to us in the scriptures. One of the ones I love is Habakkuk 2. If you ever get discouraged with the way the world is going, read Habakkuk 2. For the earth will be, not might be, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The day is coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to... How much water covers the sea? It covers it all, right? So the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to be a universal known thing. But perhaps the most shocking thing about this is that the people of God, the church, the nation of Israel, and now the people of God is the agency to show God's glory. This is an amazing thing. Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, this is worth thinking about because, okay, creation shouts out the glory of God, right? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. You go out on a starlit night, you see into the galaxies, and you're like, you cannot go. There's no place on the planet that says that their language is not heard. In every language, the heavens declare the glory of God. But how do you get people from creation to Jesus or to his word? Because they aren't necessarily going to look at the moon and the stars and the mountains and all those things and immediately turn to Jesus. So our lives point to the glory what does the word glory mean? Glory just simply means the weightiness and the heaviness, the beauty, the splendor, the majesty, the glory of God. We are people who are all about glory, about praise. We do it in every area of life. We glorify a ton of things. You go to a good restaurant, you glorify it. You put it on Instagram, you tell your friends. You, you see a good movie, you glorify it, you tell your friends about it. You see the beauty, the majesty, the splendor of God, and you glorify him. So as our lives are transformed, as we are renewed by the power of the gospel, a watching world cannot help but avoid the display of God's grace. So as I mentioned before, the world cannot help but see 
when a bitter person becomes sweet again, when a hard, unforgiving, crusty old character has attitudes that are replaced with mercy and grace and forgiveness, a a person who was eaten up with anger who becomes a gentle, loving person, the fact that God can set captives free from sin that he can bind up and heal a broken-hearted person, that it says he sets lonely people into families, that he restores the broken mess that we tend to make of our lives, that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, not to make much of us, but to make much of him. So there is a fascinating verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, that we all with unveiled faces. Let me turn over there. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a fascinating text because it compares the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And in the greater context, it says, do you remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai? And Sinai was covered with the glory of God, so much so that the people had to stand back. And when Moses came down from being in the presence of God, literally he was glowing with the glory of God, so much so that the people couldn't look at him. So Moses covered himself with a veil as the glory diminished. The new covenant says it's just the opposite. The longer you spend with Jesus, the more focus you get on the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the wonder of God, the more you glow from glory unto glory, an ever-increasing glory. The child of God looking into the word of God is changed by the spirit of God into the image of God unto the glory of God. In other words, you're glowing. And so you walk out into a world and the world's like, what are you glowing about? What is wrong with those people who glow? Because you've been in the presence of the glory of God. So earlier in the week, uh, out just before supper, running an errand for the, for the evening, and I don't know why it struck me. It was that one beautiful sunny night that we had, and there was a lot of people walking on the streets. And somehow, as I looked at these people walking on the streets, and then in the, the grocery store as I got there, somehow that evening it struck me they looked so sad. And I thought, what is it that these people need? And I know in my heart they need Jesus and they need the word, but how are they going to get to know him? Well, creation shouts the glory of God. There is a God, there is a God, but what if they're not listening to creation? Where else are they going to see the glory of God displayed? They're going to see the glory displayed in the lives of his people, the church. That as we spend time in the word, as we spend time with him, as we get him up, we lift him up, we forget about everything else and we make much of him. Our lives, literally the text says, we are transformed from glory unto glory unto glory. Are you glowing more today than you did yesterday? You should be. The glory of God on display for a watching world. Why does it matter at this point in time? Because in the coming months, As we talk about a new building, we might get easily sidetracked. And that if we're building for any other reason than the glory of God and the glory of God alone, it will not succeed. Jesus promised to build his church. You know what's cool about finish off that story there in 2 Corinthians? The next chapter, chapter 4, he says, here's what God does. He goes out to the garage and he rummages through the recycling bin and he gets some old plastic container, some peanut butter jar, and he dumps the glory of God into that peanut butter jar, and that's us. Now, the text actually says clay pots, but in our modern context, that's what it is. It's something out of the recycling bin. 
just an ordinary old clay pot and God puts his glory in crackpots like you and me. So that the display is not about us, but it's about him. He gets the glory. Woo! So some voices are saying, I like Jesus. I like the Bible. But I'm not so sure about the church. And I hope and pray that over the next five weeks, as we talk about why the church exists, that it exists for his glory. It exists for the good of our city. It exists for the good of his people. There is a ministry that we have one to another. It exists for the good of the nations, and it exists for the good of the family. The church is not an institution or an organization. It is certainly not a building. It is the people. People who strengthen and encourage and build one another up. People who stand shoulder to shoulder in worship and service. And then people who are sent out as the hands and feet of Jesus. So, true confession. I love the church. And I hope you do too. So would you stand together with me? We're going to pray. The team will come and lead us. So Father, I thank you for the men and women, the boys and girls that are listening to this message at each one of our sites. And Father, I pray that you would instill within us a love for the people of God. And Father, we will just openly confess that we're messed up people and that often we hurt one another. And we ask for your forgiveness and we ask one another forgiveness. We try to keep short accounts one with another. Your church is not perfect this side of eternity, but you're still working on us. And so, Lord, would you give us a deep, deep love for the family of God? Would you give us a deep, deep love for brothers and sisters from every tribe and nation and language and tongue, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, that no matter where we meet a brother or sister in Christ, we would acknowledge we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. And Father, may you be glorified in your church and through your word and certainly the voice of creation, but you may, may you also be glorified through your people, the church. And Father, would you give us a deep, deep love for the family of God? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.